Welcome to Question Period. I'm Evan Solomon. Today on the program, the end of the tariff war. It's a good day to be here at Stelco, good day to be here in Hamilton. It's a good day uh, for steel and aluminum workers right across the country. The U.S. and Canada end the nasty trade war as tariffs on steel and aluminum will be dropped. How did the deal come together and what does it mean for the economy? We get the very latest on that from the government and then guns and dirty money. Quite frankly, the, the, the impact that organized crime and money laundering is having right across Canada can't wait two years from our perspective and so we're taking steps now. $47 billion of dirty money flowed through the Canadian economy last year, $7 billion in BC alone. What's the federal government doing to stop it? And will they rush through a ban on some guns before the election? The Minister for Border Security and Organized Crime Reduction, Bill Blair, is here. And then, green battles. We need to take action on climate change. We need it. We owe it to our kids. Leaders of each party are outlining new plans on the environment and energy. How will this debate shape the next election? And whose plan is best? MPs are here to debate that. Plus, former NDP leader Tom Mulcair joins the scrum on Jugmeet Singh's fracking flip-flop. This is Question Period. Let's go get some answers. Well, it's over. After a long year of frustrating negotiations, the U.S. finally agreed to lift the tariffs on Canadian steel and aluminum. That ends a punishing trade battle. How did the deal finally get done? Are there any strings attached? Will this now pave the way for the new NAFTA trade agreement to be finally ratified? To find out, we are now joined by Canada's ambassador to the United States, who is instrumental in this deal, David McNaughton. And, and Ambassador McNaughton, it's been a heck of a long process. Uh, first of all, how do you feel about the breakthrough? And, and pull back the curtain for us. How did this finally happen? Well, I think, you know, I mean, how, how do I feel about it? I feel ecstatic. I mean, I really do. It's been an awful lot of hard work uh, by the Prime Minister, Minister Freeland, Minister Morneau, uh, I mean, our, our dedicated public servants and, you know, private sector and the unions and all of the people who've supported us right across the country. This has been an enormous effort and, uh, you know, to be able to see those tariffs lifted and also that this i think will give real impetus to getting the new nafta deal through both here in the united states and obviously you know we can now move ahead in canada and they will move ahead in mexico Hi, ambassador what was that what was the moment um the breakthrough i mean donald trump they justified these um tariffs for so long uh what was the breakthrough moment after a year well you know it, it, I don't think there, there wasn't any single breakthrough moment. I think it was an accumulation of things that we were able to do. One of them was, you know, I said to the Americans, I have been saying for the last two months, uh, we will not be able to pass the USMCA legislation through Parliament with these tariffs still on. It's just not going to happen. I don't think they believe me. Um, but I honestly believed it. I, I didn't think the government or, you know, parliament would pass uh, the legislation as long as this was around. And then we had an awful lot of support uh, by people like Senator Grassley, um, you know, Senator Roberts. We had people on both sides of the floor saying, 
you need to get these things out of the way. Uh, Ambassador, are there strings attached here? So I, I can sense there's great relief. These tariffs are gone. Uh, and now there might be now the ratification process will unfold. But what about the geopolitical implications about, about China? Uh, the U.S. is engaged in a very nasty trade dispute and a tariff dispute with China right now. Clearly, the U.S. needs some friends. They've got their old ally Canada back. But are there strings attached here? For example, uh, the U.S. now says that they don't want any of their allies to deal with the Chinese telecom giant Huawei. Uh, and they want to prevent Huawei from being part of Canada's 5G, the next generation wireless. Is there going to be a tit for tat out? We scratched your back on tariffs now. Canada, say no to Huawei, say no to China. Is that in the cards? Well, I, you know, I think that on the, on the Huawei thing, on the, on the 5G, um, you know, we have experts who are analyzing that situation from a national security point of view, and they will be giving advice and are giving advice to the government, and the government will make a decision based on the best evidence that we have. And uh, but are the, but I, are the U.S. But, where that's going to end? But are the U.S. pressuring? I mean, I understand that answer. Well, but the, the question was now: in the U.S. going to say, "Okay, we did this deal on tariffs, buddy. Let's go now, Ambassador McNaughton. You tell your guys we want action against China. Take a harder line." Say no to Huawei. They've pressed our allies that they will not share more information with us, you know, intelligence information, if we do accept Huawei. Is this now the first card in a forthcoming lobby effort for Canada to say no to Huawei? Well, the first uh, thing that I say to anybody who talks to me about Huawei or talks to me about the Chinese, if they're in the United States, is I say to them, look, we have two citizens, two innocent citizens, who are being held in, in, in China at the present moment, effectively being held hostage. If you want to do something to help Canada, if you want to do something to deal with this situation, then help us get our citizens home. That is the focus of our discussions right now. And, and I, by the way, what are, the are they saying to that? You know, so what are they saying? When, did the well, Prime you know, Minister they've been, raise that? Well, you know, the prime minister's raised it several times. He's raised it with the president, with the vice president. Um, you know, I mean, I, I, I've said to them, look, if, 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 if these were two U.S. citizens in the kind of conditions that they are, would you be sitting down and having a trade negotiation with the people that are holding your citizens? And the answer is no. And my answer to that is, well, we are... Uh, acting on your behalf, you asked us to extradite these to 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 have, have go through an extradition hearing for this uh, person, um, and we're we're just following our laws and we're following our extradition treaty, and it's our citizens that are are paying for it. You need to do something about it. And I think we finally got their attention on that. So I think is, that they, the, is the U.S. Hopefully asking, they will help us. Yeah, is the U.S. asking China? And they've got very strained negotiations with China. Do you know if they've said to China, we want to make a deal, but release the two Canadians? They've been held, as you say, under brutal conditions for at least six months. I, I, I don't want to get into detail as to what they've said and what they haven't said. All I can tell you is I think the Americans certainly recently have been very supportive on this particular uh, issue, and I very much appreciate it. So. Last question, Ambassador. Uh, how soon will we see ratification, in your view, here in Canada? I wonder if it's before the next federal election, which is five months away. And how fast will this happen, if it happens, because the Democrats have opposed this, in the United States? 
Well, I, 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 I don't know what uh, the government's intention is in terms of uh, the legislation, but I, I, I imagine that it will be introduced in the House of Commons uh, very, very shortly. I know the House isn't sitting next week, uh, but I expect that we will introduce the legislation soon. Um, I, uh, I've been saying for the last uh, two months, if we get this 232 thing resolved, my view is that this Congress will pass the USMCA legislation, the NAFTA 2, KUZMA, whatever you want to call it, before the uh, end of the summer session at the end of July. I actually believe it's going to happen. I've spent a lot of time uh, on the Hill talking to people, including a lot of Democrats, and I think this tariff resolution is going to give the impetus to, uh, to get this deal done. And I am extraordinarily pleased that this has happened. Uh, Ambassador, just out of interest, would you be concerned if Conservatives win the next election in uh, October that they would want to make changes to the deal the way the Democrats, when they took control of the House, have wanted to make changes to the new NAFTA negotiation? Would you be concerned about that if there's a new government here in Canada? You know, um, as a nonpartisan public servant, I don't think it's appropriate for me to comment on Canadian politics. But, um, you know, good question. (laughs) All right. I got to leave it there, Ambassador. I'm sure you've got a lot of relief, a lot of relief for you after a lot of hard work, sir. Thank you so much for joining us. That is our ambassador in the United States in Washington, Ambassador David McNaughton. And that's a victory lap you don't get very often in politics. Climate and energy policies are set to shape the next election. The Conservative leader just announced his promise to build an energy corridor. Check this out. We could have a single corridor planned up front and in full consultation with the provinces and with Indigenous Canadians who would share in the prosperity that it would provide. Meantime, the NDP leader, Jagmeet Singh, has flipped his position, I think, on a pipeline project saying he now opposes fracking. Look at this. I support that they've done good consultations. Uh, I do not believe fracking is the future for Canada. Also, the Greens are calling for deeper cuts on carbon emissions and the Liberals are wanting to force a vote on a climate emergency. Here's the climate minister. We need a serious conversation about whether uh, all parliamentarians are committed to tackling climate change. So, whose plan is best in all this? Let's bring in MPs to debate it. Mark Miller is a Liberal MP for Quebec. He joins us in studio. Lisa Raid is the Deputy Conservative Leader. She is in Toronto. And the NDP uh, MP Tracy Ramsey joins us from Windsor. Great to have all of you here. i got to start with you, Tracy Ramsey. Um, so we've had these clips on our show in January. Your party leader, Jagmeet Singh, was explicit. I support this liquefied natural gas. 40 billion pipeline uh, in British Columbia. It has the support of the NDP government, the elected First Nations leader. Now suddenly he says he's against fracking, which is the whole point of the pipeline. So just yes or no, does your leader and your party support that pipeline? Well, Evan, that pipeline is going through. That project has already been approved. From the federal level, there's nothing we can do at this point uh, to stop that. And so we recognize that BC has an ambitious climate uh, plan. Are we happy with the fracking? No. New Democrats are very, very worried and concerned about fracking. But our focus is on transition. These projects that are approved and moving forward, how are we going to transition out of that into the green economy and the jobs that exist for the future? This is really where uh, we need to be focused. That's fair enough. But 
four months yeah. ago in January, your leader was like, I like the process on this pipeline. This is the kind of thing we support. And he said, I'm clear. I support this LNG pipeline. So now I just want to know because voters want a clear answer. You, you do support that pipeline, but you're saying that but we would support no more LNG pipelines. Is that the NDP position? Because I got to be candid. It's hard to figure out. It's not about supporting that pipeline. That project is approved. That project is going through. Our concerns about fracking are real and legitimate. Our climate plan is re real and legitimate. We have a climate plan that is so ambitious that doesn't leave working people behind, doesn't leave families behind, makes sure that everyone is captured and focuses on transitioning into the green economy and the jobs of the future. That is where we are focused on. When we talk about the energy programs or what's happening at the federal level, that pipeline, the Kinder Morgan pipeline right now, that project can be reversed, can be stopped right, uh, right okay. now by Justin okay. Trudeau, okay. and he's so, refusing to do so. Mark, you, um, you, want, you want to weigh in on this, so I, uh, Mark Miller? I mean, I think Canadians will find this incomprehensible. Uh, the leader of the NDP is, is putting in jeopardy 10,000 jobs in B.C. Uh, there is no clear indication uh, as to what he would do. Uh, to support both the economy and the environment. This is the question of our generation. And I you may have criticisms of the Liberal uh, platform, but at least the cards are on the table. We have a price on carbon. We have an Ocean Protections Act plan that we're going to put in place. Uh, we have incentives to buy electric vehicles. Uh, we have massive investments in, in public transit. These are all things uh, the NDP conceivably well, support. Well, the, the truth is, uh, just to be fair, you guys are, are complaining about their plan. You guys have a carbon plan that won't hit the very targets you want to hit. Is it hypocritical That's to right. be declaring an, a climate emergency? Yeah. And if it's a real emergency to you, why don't you come up with a plan that actually hits your targets? So this is an excellent question. In government, you have you can control uh, issues or you can manage issues. The environment is something you can manage. Uh, the Conservatives used to make false claims that they reduced emissions by uh, piggybacking off Kathleen's uh, wind's uh, termination of, 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 of uh, use of coal for, for, for power plants, and they, uh, and they insisted on slowing down, on, on claiming the, the slowdown in the economy for, for the emissions reductions. This is absolutely ridiculous and it's, it, it, it is hypocritical. We uh, know that there is an environmental issue that is the challenge of our generation and we're taking action. Okay, you, may, I, you may have issues, or bear, bear with me, you may have issues with it, but at the same time, let, we're going to get into the, the pipeline, but there isn't a single country in the world that is a net exporter of petroleum, the fifth in the world, that would leave their, their okay, primary well, products to, in to the be, ground, and that fair, is why so we back the pipeline process. You didn't process. answer the question that you're not going to hit go. your pipelines, but let me just bring in Lisa Raitt. Uh, Lisa Raitt, I know you want to comment on that, and I'll get to your leader's plan. Well, basically, I mean, it's interesting to watch the NDP and the Liberals both put up motions this week trying to detract away from the fact that they're both putting them up for political reasons. I mean, the Liberals aren't having a great time right now with respect to how they're performing in by-elections, and they're putting something out to try to say that their plan is going to work when fundamentally, as you already pointed out, they're not going to hit the emissions targets that they have said they were going to. And we have said very clearly that the plan we're going to put out is going to give Canadians the best chance at hitting these emissions targets So Lisa thinks the environment's a distraction. Yeah. It absolutely isn't. It's the question of our generation. And for Andrew Scheer's plan to work, which would probably push up prices, he'd have to fire the entire Supreme Court. So th this man is losing credibility by the hour and is putting forth wow. a plan that doesn't even understand the way the flow of products, <laughs> petroleum products, Evan? which you purport to support, move well. in this country. We are a net exporter Evan? of petroleum products. And Mark. he somehow wants to nationalize everything he would have to increase refineries what? because there are differences as to what we export and what we import. And the reality is, is this is a leader with a fundamental misunderstanding of how the economy works, uh, let yeah. alone the Supreme Evan, you Court. Have, you, <laughs> Evan, you have and Lisa, you're a lawyer. You should be all over this. climate deniers. 
You have the liberals who adopted the conservatives' previous plan. You have the Greens who aren't caring about workers and communities. The only party that has a comprehensive plan that captures workers, communities, and a true climate plan for the future is the NDP. Uh, all right. Well, hang, hang on. Uh, let me come back to Lisa Raitt because uh, yeah. and, and I, I know you want to respond to Mark as well. But uh, Andrew Shear did come out today with a plan on energy. And these two, you know, the environment and energy are deeply linked. He plans to build an energy corridor for things like pipelines. But there's no price attached yeah. to this. And it sounds maybe like a good idea. But what do you tell Quebec, the Quebec premier, who explicitly says, I don't want a pipeline, the Energy East or any other. Uh, what do you tell indigenous mm-hmm. groups on that? How is he going to make this happen? Is it pie in the sky? No, it's not pie in the sky. And what it's showing is that we understand and recognize that in order to get pipelines built or corridors for transmission lines to be built in this country, we have to start from the very beginning. And Andrew is very clear, my leader is very clear, in that we would bring the provinces and Indigenous peoples to the table at the very beginning so that we have the conversation about the most appropriate place for the corridor to go through. But everyone has to recognize, first and foremost, that we do need to move our energy and we do have to build pipelines. But let's find a place together where it's going to happen. That's what Andrew would like to do. He said already he's going to talk to the provinces. And just going back to something Mark said, that my leader somehow misunderstands what's going on. Look, if this is a real climate emergency, Mark, then why is your leader jetting to Florida four times in three days. If it's a real climate emergency, why is his carbon footprint on the plains so high? Why doesn't he just stay home? Why does he have to go to Tofino? If he does care that much, and it's a national emergency, so Canadians need to curtail their behavior, why doesn't it start with him? It's the old Achilles heel that the personal tax on Justin Trudeau uh, of the Conservative government. Uh, Canadians reject that type of dialogue. Lisa, you know better than that. Wow. Uh, look, the, the, the reality is I won't believe, Canadians won't believe a word of this until Andrew Scheer stands up in Quebec and says that he will ram pipelines down the throats of Quebecers in French. Uh, uh, he didn't say that. Well, talking about energy corridors, Mark. And well, he won't say frankly, it. Well, I don't think not even an not in French, which is very much a Can I finish, over who is Can going I to finish? extract more when we should be talking about our future? All right. Well, energy and climate look to be some of the key issues in the coming election. Five months away, Mark Miller, Lisa Raitt, and Tracy Ramsey. Everyone's pulling out their energy and their climate policies. Canadians will decide. Thanks, all of you. I really appreciate it. All right, coming up, what's the government doing to stem the flow of $47 billion that's being washed through the Canadian economy, the money laundering problem? Bill Blair, the Minister for Organized Crime Reduction, joins us next to talk about that and a potential ban on some kind of guns. We'll find out. Stay right here with Question Period. This is a national problem with an extraordinary focus here in British Columbia. We believe it's our obligation to get answers to those questions. The number is staggering. $47 billion of dirty money being washed through the Canadian economy, according to a report released by the B.C. government. B.C. Premier John Horgan has now launched a public inquiry into how this massive problem is affecting the economy, the housing market, and is contributing to the opioid crisis. Will it get any answer And what about the rest of Canada? Let's find out. Joining me now is the Minister of Border Security and Organized Crime Reduction, Bill Blair. Uh, Good to see you, sir. Uh, The first thing that struck me is the report in British Columbia said $7 billion. But that's just a small part of the money. Where is the rest of the money being laundered? You know, money laundering is, is a transnational organized crime problem. 
but unfortunately, as a result of some of the challenges we've seen in this country with respect to the transparency of beneficial ownership and even the resources necessary to enforce our laws and to prosecute these offenders, we've seen other criminals who are laundering their money through a number of, of, of instruments in Canada. We've seen it in the, in the B.C. casinos. We know it's been affecting their housing market as well. Um, but it's not just limited to British Columbia as well. Uh, but it's really important to recognize this is a problem that exists right across the country. That's exactly why we've taken some very significant steps. The Prime Minister gave me responsibility to bring forward new regulations to, to develop new resources and to develop better coordination of the intelligence gathering, the enforcement, and the prosecution of these offenders. I guess my question is, why has it taken so long? The B.C. is having this public inquiry because they say, look, we're desperate here. It is, and, and so, again, we still haven't got the answer. If $7 billion has been come to light in British Columbia, where's the other $33, $34 billion? Where is it coming from? What's it, is it in Ontario? Is it in Quebec? Do you know as the minister? Well, and, and one of the things that was clearly identified in British Columbia is, is that it's difficult to determine the exact scope and scale of, of the problem of money laundering. But I'm not disputing the impact that it's having on the Canadian economy and on financial instruments and even on the affordability of, of, of things that we need in our lives, such as, as decent housing. And so it's, it's something that we, we are absolutely committed to dealing with. And I'll tell you, starting several years ago, as a result of some budget pressures, the RCMP closed down their money, money uh, laundering uh, investigative units, their proceeds of crime units in British Columbia, and, and they have not had adequate resources to deal with but that. But are, are, are you blaming the Harper government for a $40 billion laundry, money laundering problem? No, absolutely. You know, let me be really clear. What I'm concerned about is how do we deal with it now? How do we fix the problem now? Like I, I've, I've got a pretty good sense of how we got here because I've been involved in those investigations for decades. But I know the, the scope of the problem. I'm working very closely with Peter German. I've, been, I've had several meetings with, with uh, David Eby, the Attorney General right. in British Columbia. We're, we're working to make sure that the RCMP have the resources they need. We make sure that they're having the, the new regulatory authorities. They but need you to say conduct that, investigations. Like, and I get that. And you're going to list off the money, the $164 million in the new budget. Yeah, I we're going to fix it. I understand that. But it's $47 billion, Bill Blair. That's a, that is a problem. And so, that and is so, and, so, and, so, so my so question is, so from? somebody's trying to, someone, you know, the average person saying, how the hell did it get out of control? Were we blindfolding here? No, no, absolutely not. But, you know, as a result of, you know, digital currencies, you know, cryptocurrencies that are, that are out there, you know, the, the, the international financial instruments have been evolving and moving ahead rapidly, and it's important that we keep up. And we've got to make sure that we're, we're adequately resourcing law enforcement. We've also experienced some difficulties in prosecuting offenders. There was a great investigation done in British Columbia called ePirate, and, and they were not able to proceed with that, that prosecution. And we've looked at, at why that investigation and prosecution did not succeed, and we're bringing in changes to the law so that we're creating an offense, for example, of recklessness so that those corporations who are wantonly reckless over the source of those monies are now going to be able to be held to account you know so we're creating new authorities new resources and, and we're getting in front of this I will tell you that much of this money comes from transnational organized crime groups that are involved in the, in the production and, and trafficking of, of drugs like fentanyl it's killing thousands of Canadians e each year they've, they've been involved in a number of different significant impactful organized criminal activities that and, and are, they do it for, for money. Okay. And they've got to clean that money, I, and I they understand. have been cleaning some of that money in Canada, and we're going to stop it. In the BC report, yeah, a lot of the money in the real estate, they say, is coming from China. People are buying houses. They want to make an act so you cannot buy a house with a numbered company, right? The Transparency mm -hmm. Act. That should be national, as far as I'm concerned. Why, why, but a lot of the money's coming from the U.S. 
What are you doing in the United States to stop the dirty money flowing from into our country and using Canada basically as an international money laundering facility? The, the relationship that we have with U.S. law enforcement, again, I've been part of that for four decades, is very, very close. The, the cooperation between ourselves, the U.S., and our, all of our five eyes partners in the sharing of this information. But, you know, we, we, even within our own country, we've got to have greater coordination. It's one of the reasons we're establishing a coordination center here in Ottawa, bringing in representatives internationally, but also from our, all of our national enforcement agencies to, to, that collect information, gather intelligence, analyze their data, and share it and coordinate it so that we can be more effective in our response. Minister, I want to talk about guns. You had the report. You were on this program. We talked about the report. You had 134,000 responses on this. Um, I've been waiting. You're, you, The Prime Minister was with uh, the leader of New Zealand, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, the leader he says he admires most in the world. She just took actions in the wake of the massacre in New Zealand on guns, on assault weapons. She doesn't understand why other countries haven't done it. You've done the study now. Canada, we've had a massacre at a mosque. We've had police officers gunned down in places like Marathorpe. When are, are you going to act? Will there be a gun ban? Evan, I can tell you. There are weapons that are designed solely to kill people. Their, their, their whole intent and purpose is to be efficient in, in, in the killing of people. And we've seen in, in mass murders in Canada and around the world that those weapons have been used for that purpose because they are efficient killing machines. I feel very strongly that there's no place for those weapons in Canadian society. You know, I've, I've done a very exhaustive review of this issue and, and traveled and spoke to people right across the country. I will tell you, I believe there's an overwhelming consensus in this country that that public safety is important, that, that we deserve to be safe um, in our communities and in our places of worship, and those weapons, which have been used to, to kill so many people, have no place in our society. Okay, so let, let's talk how, how you do it. The, the government could implement this, there's only a couple weeks left in the House, but you could do an order in council over the summer. You could do an assault weapons ban. Are you, as the minister, pushing the prime minister to get this done? It's something that your government believes in. The, the Prime Minister is with the leader of New Zealand. He says Canada's back. This would be an opportunity. Are you pushing to get this done? I, I can tell you that for me there is no greater responsibility than the safety of our, our communities and safety of our kids. And, and I believe there's no place for those, for those particular weapons in our society. I've made, made my view very, very clearly known. And, and I believe it's a, it's a, it's a view shared. Uh, by my government and have you shared by most Canadians. Okay, so I just want to ma make sure I got this right. You're not ruling out an order in council to institute some kind of gun ban, some kind of weapon ban over the summer. You I, would I, not rule that out. Yeah, I, I want to be really clear. There is no measure that I think we can rule out that, that will legitimately contribute to, to greater safety for our citizens. And, and so. And you would I, like it to ha I mean, this, look, I know you, you're a cop for 40 years. I've, you I've, would support this. I've seen the devastating impact that those weapons can have on our communities. We, we saw a, a military-style weapon used at the mosque in, in, in Quebec. We also saw it slaughtering you know, children in, in Sandy Hook. They've been used to kill police officers in, in, in the line of duty. Uh, those, those weapons, I think, represent an unacceptable risk to Canadians. And I've worked most of my life to keep Canadians safe. And so, and so I feel, believe very strongly that there is more that we must do. So if, it not, if there's no order in council this summer, which is possible, could be in the election platform. Bill Blair would want that. Bill Blair wants Canadians to be safe. So, do, so does my Prime Minister. So does my government. i got to leave it there. Minister, thank you, sir. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right, coming up, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh revealed big parts of his climate change plan, but will a big flip-flop on fracking and a pipeline hurt his credibility? The Scrum is up next with special guest, the former NDP leader, Tom Mulcair. Stay right here with Question Period.
I made it clear in the House, and I want to make it clear again, uh, I believe the future of Canada does not include fracking. We cannot be fracking. So one week after losing a by-election to the Green Party in B.C., the NDP is now stepping up its climate change policy. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh says the party would cancel not only the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion, but make more ambitious cuts to greenhouse gas emissions and end fracking. But Singh said on this very program back in January that he actually supports a very big fracking project in British Columbia, the liquefied natural gas pipeline. Check it out. Yeah, I've already mentioned my support for this project, given the fact that they've done consultation in a very meaningful way. So is this a major flip-flop for the NDP leader? And what about Andrew Scheer's new promise to build an energy corridor and become energy independent by 2030? Is that realistic new plan from him as well? Let's bring in the scrum. Tanya McCharles is a senior reporter with the Toronto Star. Joyce Napier is CTV's Ottawa bureau chief. Craig Oliver is CTV's chief political commentator. And our special guest today is the former NDP leader, current CTV political commentator, Tom Mulcair. Welcome to everyone. Uh, Tom Mulcair, uh, your, your take on this. What do you make of Jagmeet Singh, at, at one point very clearly on this show, saying, I support the big $40 billion project in British Columbia for LNG. Now, mm, I'm not into fracking anymore. Is this a fracking flip-flop? Well, it's certainly a, a different position. Historically, the NDP had been very clear against fracking for all the reasons that we know. And uh, when Mr. Singh came out in favor of that big LNG project and the attendant fracking, uh, there were people out in B.C., including Sven Robinson, who criticized him for it, saying, you know, we shouldn't be in favor of these new projects until we've got a clear path to respecting our international obligation to reduce greenhouse gases. So, of course, it's a, it's a contradiction that led a lot of people to say, look, the only voice right now on the environment that we can count on is Elizabeth May's Green Party, and that's why Elizabeth May got 39% in Nanaimo Ladysmith in that by-election just uh, about a week and a half ago. So there's no way to get away from the fact that Canadians are worried about the environment, they're worried about climate change, and they want a strong, credible voice, consistent voice, to carry them through to that goal. And if you're the NDP leader, you are feeling the Greens breathing down your neck, and I guess he's decided that he had better come against uh, fracking. But without fracking, there wouldn't be that pipeline which he supported here last year. Uh, and by the way, it includes thousands of jobs he would be saying no to if he makes himself clear and says one leads to the other. There won't be the pipeline if I become the Prime Minister of Canada as the NDP leader. This, there's no question this is a reflection of the political heat that Jagmeet Singh is feeling um, on the environment, in BC, in the political landscape of BC, uh, and Craig's right, he's he's really undermined some of the confidence that laborers out in BC who have jobs as a result of yeah, that. Unions plant. aren't happy. About they're it. not. Uh, they're not at all happy. But I think more concerning for the party uh, and for potential supporters of the party is the fact that this is something that looked like it was made up on, on the fly. It was something that evolved in the course of questioning in a scrum, not a thought-through policy. And so I think that speaks more to Mr. Singh's sort of readiness to confront these issues on the campaign trail. I think maybe somebody should give him, you know, a policy book or something, um, and, or he should do his homework, because I think people out there are going to get pretty confused pretty fast. Was this not already a done deal? And if it was a done deal and he was, he was for it, his flip-flop now is it's, it's indicative of where everybody is at. And perhaps the conversation on the environment should go elsewhere. Um, if these jobs are going to be right. lost, why would, the uh, NDP, why would the NDP not be uh, for this project? I think the reason uh, he swung the way he did 
was because initially what he saw was all of the elected leaders uh, along the route of that pipeline the from all of the First leaders, Nations yeah. agreeing that they, they want this pipeline. And I think that's why he initially jumped on board. Well, and it was supported by, of course, the NDP government out there. Exactly. Provincial, federal, and as you said, the elected indigenous leaders. Um, let's go to Andrew Scheer. He's rolling out policies every mm -hmm. single week. Uh, this week, uh, lots of policies on energy. And one of the things he said, Tom Mulcair, is he'd like to build an energy corridor uh, that would also eventually mean that pipelines could be built both east and west, but also that Canada should be in energy independent by 2030. Um, what's your take on this energy corridor? Is it even a realistic issue, and how does it play out in vote-rich places like Quebec? Well, that's something that always sounds good, except when you look at what's actually happening, Doug Ford said no to a deal that had been brought together between the Quebec and the Ontario Liberals under, respectively, Philippe Couillard and Kathleen Wynne. He said he doesn't need any of that clean, renewable hydro. So now Quebec is going to be selling that same hydro to New York City, which is very glad to be able to displace a lot of the oil that was being burned to heat buildings. So it's a win for New York, and I don't know why Doug Ford said no to that, but the reality is that right now, in Canada, we can talk all we want about energy corridors, but the provinces have a lot to say about that. Right. Mr. Legault, who is an objective ally of Andrew Scheer, is a very right-wing fellow with regard to the economy. He's very much in lockstep with Mr. Scheer on a lot of things, has already said yes to a massive liquid uh, natural gas project to the Saguenay. That's something that Mr. Scheer would obviously be in favor of, but he said no to Energy East or any right. other new version of Energy East. So, why would he pick a fight with a province that has 78 seats up for grabs in next fall's election and a government of that province that is saying everything that it can to say, look, we're on side with the Conservatives on many of these issues. I don't think that Mr. Scheer is being very well advised on some of this stuff, to be honest with you, Evan. Well, I, I think that, you know, what I, he's trying to put out is broad strokes of a, a vision and what he said on energy corridor support you know supports his own backing of major energy projects however that's easier said than done the devil's in the details does he intend to expropriate land does he intend to run, run roughshod over indigenous communities might, that might have a say or want to have a veto over such an energy corridor there's no details on that so it, i think yeah. i think it i think that this is this is Mr. Scheer trying to pitch his support for energy, but that's a given. Okay. And, and, and that's true. But let's say something. You know, big projects are born out of outrageous ideas. Who would have thought hundreds of years ago, oh, look, we can have a, a railway from coast to coast. Everybody say, oh, you're crazy. So maybe it is a crazy idea. Maybe it isn't feasible. We don't know. I mean, we're having a hard time making a pipeline in this part of Canada. Imagine this. But imagine if actually it could work. Imagine if there was a way to make it feasible. Like why are our politicians not allowed to dream a little bit? That's what we want from them. So go for it. Let's go for big projects and then let's kill them because we're Canadian. We love to kill our projects. He's setting out a vision. He's got a vision with no money, no details, but it's a vision. But it's a vision. In other words, this is a pie in the sky pipeline. No, it's a pipe dream and all that, but maybe not. never going to happen. So what do you make of it, Craig? Well, it just, how else is it going to resolve the usual issues with all the First Nations, dozens and dozens of them along the route? Is it going to be a next 
to a highway. If it isn't next to a highway, then he's going to have to build a new Trans-Canada See, we highway. love to do They're this just, in Canada. And, and, we love and, to as, shoot as down big said. ideas. Why? Why do we want to just if shoot it down? Why do we, why do we think it's impossible? Well, Can't we do them a little bit? I've got a minute. So we're five months from a federal election. How, Tonda, real quick, how... Um, important will these issues of the energy and the environment, these policies that everybody's rolling out, debates on energy, you know, climate emergencies, how much will these shape voters and the next general election? Good God. Uh, if you listen to the Conservatives, it's going to be key, but they're pitching it as an economic argument. I still think pocketbook issues are the yes. big ones. Yeah. Yeah. And, pocket, and, and Tom, real yeah. quick, pocketbook issues, when you talk about climate, there's, there's the, the general issue, and then there's a price of gas. Look at New Brunswick, look at BC, look at Ontario. Is that going to be a, a key shaper of this election? No question that the price of gas moves more votes than any concern about climate change, but there is a core voter, uh, there's a core electorate of about 20-25% of Canadians who will change their vote to a party that they believe will act on climate change. We saw it on Vancouver Island just last week. We know that Elizabeth May's Green Party is on the march. They got 12%, for heaven's sakes, in my old riding of Outremont. Unheard of here in Quebec for the Green Party. But it shows, uh, Evan, that there's a real concern about climate change in Canada. People are willing to change their votes based on that. Mr. Trudeau's Liberals have talked a good game. Catherine McKenna is a great spokesperson, but they just simply haven't delivered. They haven't gotten the job done. So people are looking to have a situation like the one that exists in B.C., where the Greens hold the balance of power, have held the government's feet to the fire, and they've been delivering on climate change and on the environment generally. All right. Uh, well, we'll find out. Uh, thanks so much. Got to leave it there. Tom Mulcair, thanks so much. The rest of the scrum will stay with us because coming up, the U.S. and Canada reach a deal to end steel and aluminum tariffs. What does this mean for the economy and for the next election? To talk about that and the impact of the Mark Norman case, which is still going on. The Scrum is back. Our special guest will be the former finance minister, John Manley. Stay right here with Question Period. We, you know, stayed strong because that's what workers were asking for us, but also that's what Canadians were saying, that these tariffs... Uh, didn't make sense around national security. Uh, they were hurting Canadian consumers, Canadian workers, and American workers and American consumers. Well, it's been a long time coming. The U.S. finally pledges to lift its punitive tariffs on Canadian steel and aluminum. Is this a big win for the government? Hard not to see it that way. But it's still reeling from so many controversies. For example, was the government right to shut down the investigation into the case of Vice Admiral Norman, the Conservatives and the NDP want a public inquiry into that. Let's bring back the scrum and we'll talk about all that. Tony McCharles, Joyce Napier, Craig Oliver and our special guest this round is the former finance minister, John Manley. All right, uh, John Manley, let's start talking about this. The big picture, the kind of raw politics, the end of this tariff war, these punitive tariffs against Canada's steel and aluminum. Big win for the government. What does it mean? Oh, I think it's a very big win for the government. Many critics were saying they should never have agreed to the USMCA, the new NAFTA, without getting these steel and aluminum tariffs removed. So it's lingered on. They threatened not to uh, ratify uh, the USMCA unless they had them removed. And uh, it's been a lingering and very annoying grievance between Canada and the U.S. And other critics are saying, why on earth did you ever arrest that woman from Huawei if you'd can't even get these tariffs removed. Look at what the Chinese are doing to us. Are we not getting anything for having done that for the United States? And so this takes a, 
a, a big burden, I think, off the back of the government. The foreign minister and the prime minister have said how many times that these tariffs are illegal and should be removed. And I'm told that the prime minister pretty much told the president in a conversation earlier in the week uh, that Canada just simply cannot sign or ratify the new NAFTA with these tariffs, illegal tariffs hanging there, which is what the foreign minister has been saying all along. And I think the Americans need a friend because they're into a major geopolitical struggle with China over the future of the global economy. And I think China actually did play a role in this. I mean, Mr. Manley alluded to it, but I think that Canada was able to show to the U.S. and say, look, we're taking a hit for you on in our relationship with China and our citizens are paying a price, how can you say we're not an ally of yours? How can you say we're a threat in any way to your national security? Get rid of these tariffs or there's no deal. So it seems to have played a role. Maybe also the fact that the, that the president needed a win in the U.S. And he would not have gotten it through Congress had he kept these 232 tariffs on steel and aluminum. So, you know, they didn't do it out of friendship. They're very pragmatic um, and bloody-minded people. He wants this to go through Congress, and if he gets it through Congress, it is by lifting these tariffs. And no matter how many favors we've done to the Americans, I will never believe that this is out of friendship. This is just out of a pragmatic calculation from this White House. Uh, John Manley, you're, no, you're, you're, you're laughing about that. Right, because, you know, one thing we need to know, and Canadians need to understand, is America first mm. means exactly. not North America. America first means the United States of America. It's here to stay. I'm telling you, whether Trump is reelected or not, uh, that attitude is there to stay. We, we need to be very careful looking after our own interests because they're not going to do things for us because we're nice or, you know, because we let them win the Stanley Cup every year. But we, we've got to look after ourselves. But if the United States hopes to win the struggle for the 21st century economy with China, they need allies. And they need allies in the West. And they're reaching out to allies in the case of Huawei. And one of the things that Canada is giving back, I'm almost certain, is we're going to agree to ban Huawei. Uh, the Americans are using Huawei as a top enemies list in terms of this economic struggle. That's the start. It's all about global technology and who is a leader in it. And I ju just the context of that, of course, in the last week, the U.S. has said that we they uh -oh. do not want to have Huawei, the Chinese telecom company, uh, as part of their next generation wireless, the so-called 5G. And there's great pressure, Tonda, on Canada to follow mm -hmm. suit. That's where the... the, the um, extradition case of Meng Wanzhou plays out. And, you know, Craig's point is that, um, you know, in this massive trade war between Can uh, the U.S. and China, does this, well, it's a favor to Canada, maybe, does it drag us in the middle as another pawn between the Chinese and the, and the United States? Look, I don't, I, I don't know. Craig seems to think that Canada is going to do the U.S. bidding on this. The prime minister insists it's not a political decision. He's going to listen to the security agencies. But also, he's got big telecommunications companies in this country mm -hmm persuading, trying to persuade the government that Huawei can be kept far enough at bay of the core of the new networks that it won't be a threat. And Trudeau keeps talking about consumer choice and Canadians having access to the best competitive technology. I don't think that's a done deal yet. Okay, uh, let, me, let, let me turn to the case uh, against Vice Admiral Mark Norman. The case is closed, but the opposition now says there's much more we need to know about why the military second-in-command was charged with one count of breach of trust. 
cases, of course, dropped. The liberal members of the defense committee, by the way, shut down attempts to bring forward key witnesses like the defense minister or the chief of the defense staff, Jonathan Vance, who admitted that the whole thing was, quote, I own this, he said. Uh, John Manley, wait, what's your take on this? Because uh, obviously for the opposition, this, th this is part of the narrative of, the, you know, if you cross Justin Trudeau, watch out. Uh, what's your take now that the, the liberals shut down any attempt of, of, of the defense committee or a public inquiry? Well, I, I may be wrong, but I think it's an inside Ottawa story. Yeah. I don't think Mr. and Mrs. Front Porch particularly know anything about Mark Norman. I think there's a lot of questions that this raises, and, and uh, certainly many of us would like to see more transparency in military procurement. I wanted more transparency when I was in cabinet and things came to us. So uh, it is very murky. Um, as for the prime minister wanting to know the source of leaks, I mean, that's a, that's a monthly or weekly occurrence mm -hmm. around Ottawa. Le stuff leaks all the time. And somebody, the prime minister, somebody in his office, one of the ministers, somebody's always saying, who leaked that? We've all sworn an oath. I mean, why is, why is all this information out there? So at the end of the day, Mark Norman was charged uh, through a process which, by the way, leads to approval by the Attorney General. We've had lots of lectures about why the Attorney General needs to be independent. Maybe it was Jody Wilson-Raybould that gave the go-ahead for this particular <laughs> prosecution. Just saying. Wow, that, that, that's kind of interesting. Uh, last word on this, Tonda. Well, I don't have any comment on that because I don't know. Um, however, I think that... While it may not be something, the details of which have grabbed Mr. and Mrs., you know, front porch, is that what you called them? Yes. <laughs> uh, front Canadian. porch, that's right. <laughs> um, I think that there's, there's a, a downside here, a downside political risk for the Liberals, because it allows the Conservatives and their other political rivals to still paint them as doing favors for their friends in the justice system and punishing their enemies. I think that narrative is something that politically they're trying to capitalize on. All right, I, I got to leave it there. Uh, maybe it's front balcony this day and age. I don't even know. People have it. Uh, <laughs> thanks, all of you, for watching. John Manley, uh, thank you for being here. The rest of the Hi. scrum, of course, Tonda, Joyce, and Craig. Uh, thank you for being here, and thank you for watching. Uh, I hope you're having a great long weekend. We sure are, and we will be back here in seven short days. Take good care.